You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Tuesday afternoon. And since it's Tuesday, you know it. We're going to be talking about something food-related, and we're hopefully going to be on Facebook Live as well. Uh, Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio 3, and it appears we are now on Facebook Live, which is great. Yes, so let's turn to our very first uh, topic and guest uh, of today. Now, I'm really delighted to welcome our first guest, because in the next 15 minutes or so, we'll be hearing more about how food is more than just a meal. Uh, it can be a very powerful tool for some people to get to know each other, to understand each other, and also maybe to share some stories, which is why our first guest is instrumental in facilitating this. Now, Tegan Smith is the founder of Grassroots Future, which is a registered charity which looks at empowering grassroots movements uh, in the refugee and asylum seeker community. And she joins us now. Welcome to the program, Tegan. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Noreen. Thank you for having me. You've been on my radar for a while, so it's a new year, and I'm really <laughs> glad uh, to invite you on the program. Um, I should also give a shout out uh, to Daisy, uh, Daisy yes. Tam, for connecting <laughs> us. Uh, Daisy's been on uh, previously on, on the show. So now, Tegan, let's talk a little bit more about you and for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. Um, you are a lawyer by training. So, what sparked your interest in sort of setting up a charity uh, and working with the refugees? Uh, uh, the community here in Hong Kong? To be honest, it's like quite a long journey. So I did train as a lawyer in Australia, but uh, I've actually been working in finance in Hong Kong predominantly. But when I trained as a lawyer in Australia, I actually did my training with a community legal center, which represented refugees, asylum seekers, and new migrants. And that kind of exposed me to this world of um, I guess people who are trying to seek asylum, who are trying to understand and navigate the legal uh, issues within the system. And the one thing, though, that I always kind of took away from my discussions with various clients was that although we'd help with the legal issue, there'd always be these social um issues that they would face, which we couldn't really do a lot about. And one of the main things was that feeling of isolation, feeling underutilized, not feeling like you can uh, engage with other people. So I moved to Hong Kong uh, or back to Hong Kong in 2014, and I didn't automatically set up a charity. So I spent a couple of years uh, working with different charities, understanding what uh, volunteer needs they had and basically understanding the refugee landscape. And it struck me that uh, in Hong Kong, there wasn't really much agency for refugees to express themselves in their own words. And a lot of the time, media about refugees was very xenophobic, but not really giving people a chance to uh, represent their side of the story or, you know, share uh, something of their culture to show that they're valued members of the society. So in 2016, I set up Table of Two Cities, which um, people might know me more for. And um, basically, we've organized different uh, community events with the refugee community, which we curate with members of the refugee community. We've also been collecting stories and recipes. So we're working on a book as well. It's so interesting you mentioned about sort of the, the, the narrative of refugees, uh, which maybe I'm generalizing hugely, but it's it's one of two. It's either they're really painted in a negative light, you know, uh, I don't know, mm. dangerous or threatening or taking away resources. Um, or the other side we hear is about their suffering and, and the plight that they face. Um, yes. But then eventually very little is being done about it nothing more it sort of stops there um what, what's your observation of that uh i definitely would agree with that and to add to it i think the issue is that uh, there's a bit of um i guess uh 
poverty canvassing. You know, people want to focus on uh, the plight of people and raise awareness. Um, and I would often say, once you've raised the awareness, what happens next? I don't think it's really enough anymore to raise awareness. Uh, so I think kind of the model that I'm trying to move towards with my organization, with the organizations that I partner with, is call to action. So we've partnered with various refugee-led uh, communities, such as Refugee Union, One Love Community. Um, I'm also an advisor to Harmony Hong Kong, and I've worked with other individual um, refugees on various events, because I think it's important to do more than just, you know, make uh, others in the wider community pity this community. It's actually very important to give people a platform so uh, they can have a call to action. So if they have any needs, we can address them. If they have anything they want to share, there's an audience for that. And that's really kind of what we want to work towards because, you know, um, I don't think anything is going to change if we just show people a picture of suffering and poverty. And I think it's also a bit alienating as well, um, as well as dehumanizing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of Table of Two Cities and the now into grassroots future. Um, it's really special to be able to uh, share a story through the medium of food. Uh, we all enjoy a, a nice meal and it's, you know, we all chat uh, throughout our meals with our friends and our family. So this is a really terrific way to, uh, for people to connect. Um, what started it? What sparked that idea for you? Um, I think for me, growing up in both Australia and Hong Kong and sort of observing uh, like Asian diaspora in Australia, but also um, communities within Hong Kong, I notice there's a lot of commonality around sharing a meal. Um, often, at least in Asian cultures, instead of asking, how are you, people will ask if you've eaten. Um, so, <laughs> so I thought, you know, what's a way that... Um, you know, you can present refugee narratives and stories in a way that uh, makes sense to people. And I think it's true, not just in Hong Kong, but in many places, people are maybe more curious about trying a new dish um, than maybe necessarily meeting a new person. But if you can combine both together, then people might be more open-minded to, you know, meeting people of different backgrounds. And that's why I think food is such a powerful vehicle for that. Absolutely. And um, typically, what do people share when, when you've got, I mean, it's, it's first of all, it's, it's a, a, a table of two cities. So you've got, you know, it's a dialogue. You've got people understanding more about uh, the refugee community. And perhaps it's also a chance for the refugee community to understand a little bit more about Hong Kong. Typically, what do people share? Um, so, for example, with the interviews, which you can see on our website, tableofdecities.org, uh, people basically are given uh, just the, the floor to say whatever they like. Um, and in general, I've tried to, uh, with the volunteers I work with, make sure that the interviews are very open. We also make sure we curate the responses with the people, uh, the interviewees, to make sure that they're totally happy with what has been said before anything goes live. Um, so people share things about, you know, uh, I guess their home countries, what meals uh, make them feel um, like they're at home. Maybe they talk about their family. Maybe they talk about their background. Uh, it really varies from person to person. Um, the one common question, though, that I try to get out of every interview is if you had the chance to tell people in Hong Kong something, what would it be? Um, and so there's always many different responses to that, but uh, a lot of them are, you know, along the lines of I would like to be given a chance. I would like to be given a chance to meet people, to talk about myself, to share my story in my own words. Um, and so the book that we're doing, although a lot of our um, responses on the website right now are in English, we're actually trying to have a bilingual publication because 
you know, we want this to be accessible to as many people as possible. So, you know, these stories, which are all very valuable, can reach as many people in Hong Kong as possible too. Yeah. How do you think this can help change people's perceptions of refugees and asylum seekers here in Hong Kong? I think it puts people in another person's shoes when they are kind of looking at it from, you know, a perspective of, actually this person is teaching me about their culture and their dish and you know in a sense they're an expert and I'm learning from them um, I think that's the narrative swap in a sense because instead of I guess that feeling of um, maybe paternalism or pity people are actually learning something from the community and I think that's the takeaway that I, I want to share that um, if you listen to people if you also just try to engage with them with an open mind, you actually will learn a lot. Uh, so I think that's probably the takeaway people would get from the publication. But in terms of the you know, various events we've done, we've done all sorts of things. We've done film screenings, we've done comedy shows, we've done music performances, and of course, dinner events. And different people have come up with their ideas and we basically try to work in the background to help them best facilitate that. And I think you know, people who attend these sorts of events you know, we'll actually see that uh, there's many different uh, facets to what it means to be a refugee. Um, you might not necessarily know someone is just on site. And I think that's really important to challenge those assumptions. Yeah. And also, I think the, the notion of a, a refugee is a bit somewhat distant uh, to, to, to the typical Hong Konger. But the truth is, anybody can be displaced. Anybody can become a refugee at a blink of an eye. If something exactly. happens, uh, you know, politically or uh, economically, uh, people can yeah. can can be displaced. So why is that notion sort of so far removed from Hong Kong? Is it because we're such a such an affluent society that we never really put put ourselves in, in other people's shoes? I'm trying to sort of grapple with this idea. What are your thoughts, Tegan? I actually think it's a bit of cognitive dissonance because actually my grandparents were asylum seekers and I think a lot of your listeners, um, you know, if they have family uh, from Hong Kong, they might actually have a narrative of asylum. So in my grandparents' case, they were from mainland China and they came here in the late 40s and 50s. And um, I think about a million people actually came from China to Hong Kong in that time. And that was one of the biggest waves of refugees and well, asylum seekers, I would suppose. So I think it's really cognitive dissonance. You know, people probably can trace back their ancestry to that wave of migration um, or whatever you would like to call it. Um, but perhaps it's because we kind of maybe associate the word refugee, uh, asylum seeker, migrant to a person that comes from a very different culture, uh, landing up in another country, perhaps it's that reason and maybe the stigma attached to it that we don't want to look at ourselves through that lens. But I think actually what we need to accept is that you don't have to look very far to find that narrative, you know, in your own family. Um, and so that's why I think it's important that we address these issues and, you know, talk about it and people actually maybe have a bit of introspection about uh, how they uh, relate to, you know, the idea of being a refugee. Absolutely. I mean, my grandparents are refugees as well. They also uh, left yeah. mainland China to, to build a life here in Hong Kong. Um, it, it's funny yeah. how, you know, Hong Kong is really built on, on many people leaving the mainland China and starting yeah. a new life here in Hong Kong, but we never really uh, think about it uh, in, exactly. in that aspect. So do you find that through your events and through your workshops and through your stories, people have a better understanding and a deeper connection with many refugees here in Hong Kong? And I'm curious to know, do 
refugees sort of feel more connected to Hong Kong? Because a lot of the times when you're a refugee um, or an asylum seeker, you don't get to choose where you go to. You know, you get on yeah. a plane, you get given some tickets and you end up, say, in a place like Hong Kong. And quite oftentimes, contrary yeah. to, to popular belief, Hong Kong may not even be the first choice for many of the refugees you know I, I know I know yeah. a lot of people think Hong Kong is a very great place and it is to to a great extent but for mm. many refugees you know they're not given a lot of rights you, they can't work in Hong Kong they're given a, um, a sort of measly allowance it's not really the first choice for, for many of these refugees what, what do they think of Hong Kong I think it really varies from person to person. I think um, on the one hand, if people have sought asylum from, you know, very traumatic experiences, you know, political persecution, maybe, um, you know, persecution on religious grounds, Hong Kong is seen as a place that's the antithesis of that you know, violent experience that they've had. But on the flip side, and I think this is a commonality with everyone, not being able to work or having limited scope to really express yourself, that really is so detrimental to your mental health and, you know, your, your I guess, self-value uh, as, as a person because, you know, many people are actually very highly educated. They held down decent jobs in their home country, but then for whatever reason, they had to leave. And then they come here and they're told, you know, you can't work. Um, you know, we don't know when your case will be accepted. And so, you know, people might be waiting for 10 years. I also know people who've been here for about 20 years. And then to think that time you can't work at all, you can't prove your value as a person. I think, you know, there's a lot more that we need to do. And that's why, you know, with Grassroots Future and also all the other refugee organizations, big and small, that are engaged in this issue, that's why I think we need to work together and find durable solutions for people and durable solutions in the sense that, you know, people are able to learn for life and, um, you know, regardless of their situation, they're able to um, make something in Hong Kong of value so that wherever their life takes them, you know, they will be able to, to kind of um, navigate, you know, um, this modern world. And, you know, you can only do that when you, you know, learn new things, when you have experiences and when you engage with different stakeholders in society. Yeah. Um, what has the impact of COVID-19 been like uh, for, for the refugee community? And were you sort of able to continue your work uh, for, for Grassroots Future? So Grassroots Future is very new. So we actually just received our charity status uh, at the end of last year. Congratulations. Um, but so I, thank you. Um, so uh, I would talk more to what we've done with Table of Two Cities. I think COVID has been extremely challenging for refugee um refugee organizations and the refugee community. And um, we did spend a lot of time and resources helping Refugee Union because they're a refugee-led organization. Um, and the thing is, the work they do is really important, but because of bureaucratic structures, they can't really operate like a full charitable organization. Um, and so one of the big problems uh, from last year is that refugees actually have received the same allowance every every year, every month, um, and that allowance has not actually changed since 2014. So they only receive about uh, 1200 for food, which they get in park and shop vouchers, and about 1500 for rent, which goes straight to the landlord, and 200 Hong Kong dollars, you know, for uh, their transportation for the entire month. And with COVID, uh, the prices of just, you know, staple items that they would buy in supermarkets was just 
vastly inflated. There's also just shortages because, you know, uh, as everyone buying. knows, there was oh. panic buying of like toilet paper and everything. So uh, it was a collective panic, I would say. So we did, you know, because we couldn't do as many events as we would have liked to, our focus moved to trying to help Refugee Union um, get these resources. So we organized a few donation drives for these staple items. We also just tried to push out as many calls to action as possible just to um, get the word out there that, you know, people can go drop in the center and these are the things that people need and basically try to keep this momentum up of uh, regular giving to their organization. Um, we've also uh, recently finished a winter appeal. So we were able to get a lot of beanies and scarves and winter clothes uh, knitted and crocheted for Refugee Union. And, you know, many kind people in the community also donated clothes. Um, I, I think in a sense, you know, uh, 2020, uh, I don't want to jinx the new year, but, you know, it kind of immobilized a lot of things that I guess everyone wanted to do uh, but I think you know this is what we did uh, over the year and at least it helped you know um, a refugee-led organization and we hope to do similar things in future. Yeah are you able to work with sort of different organizations here in Hong Kong who also work with uh, the refugee community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's actually a refugee concern network. Uh, so we have recently joined. So it's a consortium of different charities and NGOs that are working on refugee issues. But also, you know, we just have our individual um, partnerships with refugee-led organizations because, you know, we really want to help them build capacity. Um, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, uh, a charity where you're doing handouts or, you know, trying to kind of get people you know, through each day, but obviously it's um, it's much more valuable to teach someone how to fish and give them the tools they need to help themselves. So that's really what we're trying to do. That's awesome. Um, Tegan, finally, moving forward, uh, it's great to sort of have turned a, a new corner, if you like. Uh, 2021 yeah. <laughs> is, is a new year. Uh, hopefully it'll yeah. be much, much better than last year. Uh, what, what's your vision for Grassroots Future? What do you plan to do this year uh, more of? So I think the main thing is we want to build up an educational program and we want to work with different stakeholders in the community who want to uh, enhance their skills and in particular creative uh, outlets. So we're trying to build up a couple of programs right now. Um, it's still a bit of a work in progress uh, because we're still at the early stages of our organization, but we're hoping to uh, announce it soon on social media. Um, but aside from that, we will also be working on the Table of Two Cities book so please look out for that in 2021 we can't wait and uh, once it's ready let us know and we'll post a link on all our social media platforms as well <laughs> Thank you. Tegan remind our listeners once again how can we find out more about uh, grassroots future and also table of two cities have you got a website and Instagram how can we find out more Yes, we have both website and Instagram for Table of Two Cities and Grassroots Future. It is just the name, no underscores. Uh, and we also have a website. So uh, to see stories from the refugee community, you can go on www.tableofdwcities.org. And for Grassroots Future, it's the same, um, .org. Uh, and we also have a Facebook page for Table of Two Cities. Excellent. Well, Tegan, such a pleasure to finally get to, uh, the chance to chat with you. And that's Tegan yeah. Smith, the founder of Grassroots Future and also Table of Two Cities. Many thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much.